Welcome to Everything Hurts. My name is Dan Quintana from the University of Oslo. I'm here with James Heathers from Cypher Skin and a special guest, Ashley Farley, who is the program officer of Knowledge and Research Services and the lead of the open access team at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And she has spent more than 10 years in both academic and public libraries focusing on digital inclusion and providing access to scholarly content. Ashley, thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's all right. Are you, does that officially make you a librarian? I am a librarian, yes. Yes. Fuck yeah. So we, have we have more librarians wanting, on. Oh, oh, it's happened. We've been wanting a librarian on the show for, for 138 episodes. Yes. Yeah, and I've, we've, I've probably, I probably mentioned it once a month for the last two or three years. This, this is fantastic. It's probably not the reaction you normally get. <laughs> no, no, I'm used to very much the, well, <laughs> you're just a librarian. That's that's the tone I'm I'm used to in the work oh, that we do. Yes. <laughs> j- j- any any noun that is introduced by just a is, I mean, it's always, it's always a marvelous way to make friends, isn't it? It is. It is. I also find it interesting <laughs> that I get that from all angles of publishers and researchers and, yeah. This is exciting for us because um, we speak a lot on the show about um, open research and open access, but this is from the perspective of being academics and being researchers. So uh, I want to hear your perspective as a librarian on the importance for open research. Yes. So when I first started working in libraries, I've worked both in, in public and academic and we had a, a community that wanted access to information all the time. And even in library school, I didn't learn a lot about open access. It wasn't part of the curriculum, which I, you know, retrospectively think is is quite odd for a movement that's been around for quite some time. And the fact that li- you know, librarians are really kind of in the nexus of, of information access. Uh, but I didn't become a librarian to kind of protect publisher profits and copyrights. And and I I started reflecting on uh, interactions I would have with members of our community, um, you know, wanting to come in and getting access to something and having to, you know, either try to get access or if they, when, especially when I worked at the university, if they, you know, came in as the general public, you know, we'd have to have specific ways for them to access information. It was just really cumbersome. And at times we weren't able to provide based on, you know, whatever negotiations we had set up. And I just found that really frustrating over time that there were so many different barriers to access, whether it's, you know, tech or or um, financial uh, or rules of the publishers. And, and from a librarian perspective, you know, I was like, I want to, I want to be able to share all the information and be able to do, answer people's questions and get them the resources that they need without any sort of, of gatekeeping. No, I mean, that, that's, that always felt like the ethos to me. I, I can't, maybe on a few occasions, um, multiple libraries and multiple continents, you very rarely do you meet a librarian who is, not not enthused about the dissemination of information. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of your thing when you walk in going, I've got a really specific problem. I've seen so, so many times, especially in Sydney, where I think the, the libraries were quite well funded. Um, I had the experience of going in and looking for something really specific because I often had weird shit to do. Um, and I don't think I ever had a negative response. 
Librarians always went, oh, wow, are we going to look for something weird? This is like, this is much, this is much better than what I was hoping for. Let's have a go and see what happens. Um, I'll look afterwards. Can I get your email so I can see what else I can find? It's like, like you actually dig on this shit. Oh, okay. it's, I think We're, of it as being like be a friends. detective. <laughs> I, yeah. I like that kind of, yeah, digging and problem solving and... And I think because we we see the benefit of it too when people uh, are empowered by by knowledge and are able to uh, you know do what they need to do to better themselves or their community. Um, and it's a shame when when access uh, issues and copyright get get in the way. And um, yeah, I'm still amazed to how how we see conversations. You know, we have the internet nowadays, and it's still kind of acceptable to say, well, just email the author and ask for a copy, and and there's an expectation on librarians too, to be able to help facilitate that if we aren't using like interlibrary loan or other systems that are set up. I mean, one of my first public uh, library jobs, like we, we couldn't afford access to m- any really peer reviewed journals, not a lot of databases. And so we were consistently um, just at a loss of, of being able to access information and the general public didn't understand it because uh, <laughs> that's what we're there for as an institution. Um, so yeah, I started really getting interested in, in trying to make that better. Um, didn't didn't realize that it'd be such a kind of long, arduous process to do so. I saw an interview that you did on the Coalition S uh, website, and uh, there's a nice quote there within the um, within the interview where you said, "If I had the power to pass an international law about open access, how about that, James? I would require that authors retain the rights to their work. To enhance this, I would require the use." of the most liberal CC licenses. Can you unpack this a little bit? Yeah, so my overall thinking of open access has shifted in the last few years. I mean, I started out very much like everything, you know, should be open uh, as much as possible and and really a major, uh, you know, open access advocate. And then now I've been shifting my thinking where around uh, not necessarily just the access, but uh, copyright and and uh, the legalities behind that. And I, I just, especially now in my role interacting with researchers, I'm kind of surprised that I, I understand because of the system by the time that they've you know been reviewing and working on this article for a year and a half, they just want it to be published. Uh, but how little awareness there is from a lot of researchers, even if they've been in you know doing research for a long time, what it means to assign your copyright over. And um, especially with Coalition S work, I've been reading a lot more into copyright transfer agreements. And it's it's amazing uh, you know how much you give to the publisher for really little little in return. I'm sure there's you know you got to publish your article it goes on your cv you get uh you know readership and and of course there's there's those components but but i don't i don't see why we should give full copyright to the research especially if it's publicly or privately funded like the foundation uh over to to the publishers and we've seen quite a few examples recently with our own program staff uh you know wanting to reuse figures wanting to reuse tables and and getting faced with large fees from the publishers in order to do so if the content wasn't openly licensed. So I've tried to shift my thinking around open access, not just the removal of paywall, but really highlighting uh, the copyright component as well. Yeah, And I know I, NACC I, by, it's, you know, I, I know there's a, 
you know, contentions around how open licenses can be. And I know it, it depends on disciplines and, uh, you know, what the topic is, but especially in public health, I'm a big proponent of the most liberal license. It, it is fascinating how much baked in naivete there is about basic, but here's, here's, here's a fascinating thing. Um, People who write $2 porn books and put them on Amazon usually have a reasonable working understanding of copyright. A researcher who has written dozens of CNS-level papers and has three to 500 career publications over a 40-year period, a variety of books, usually has a worse understanding of license types, copyright conditions, uh, information reuse, fair use principles, etc., than someone who's writing Chuck Tingle shit and putting it on Amazon. It is, I, 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 I'm glad you're not arguing with me. I was, <laughs> I've said that before and people have been, that's incredibly mean. Um, it, it's amazing that it's basically a job where the output of the job is publishing and it is full almost entirely of people who know nothing about publishing at all. Yes, yeah, yeah. And it makes it really impossible to communicate policy because- you know, now I've uh, I've become kind of a de facto lawyer, but not really. But uh, you know, in understanding copyright and trying to convey these, you know, pieces of the policy to to our researchers, uh, yeah, it's 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 been a bit of an uphill battle. But I, I think at the same time, it's it's great that we're finally having these conversations. And yes, they're they're they may be difficult and not not always you know, easy to talk through why it's important to keep your copyright and kind of what our intentions are as the foundation of having funded the research in the first place. Uh, so I think it's great that they're actually, it's happening now, but it, they're, yeah, they're very interesting of like, well, why, why does this matter to me? And why do I have mm. to keep my copyright? And what is the, yeah, especially. Yes. Well, why, do, why do the digital rights and preservation of my work that I did with someone else's money matter to me? Yeah. And now that the, the model has become. <laughs> That I have to pay four thousand dollars at the low level to keep my copyright. I mean, I think that's kind of what the publishing model has become. I mean, as much as I love seeing a proliferation of open access, it's it, I feel like these articles are being held hostage uh, at the publisher, and and yeah, the the authors just get tired, and then they just kind of concede, and then and then we're on to the next article. <laughs> You mentioned the ability to reuse tables and figures before. What other implications are there for, for, for retaining your copyright when it comes to research? What are, what are things that academics should consider? I think one of the biggest things is, is dissemination. And I think that gets confusing because they don't necessarily understand uh, like the current copyright of sharing, you're giving over exclusive copyright and Technically, I mean, it depends on the publisher, but technically, uh, and I see this at the foundation a lot, you know, if, if we haven't paid to access the subscription, then, you know, you get a copy of that article. You can't just widely share it. And so I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, misuse of, of sharing. I, as a librarian, I'm, I'm not very compelled, again, to, to stop that, but I think the education is important. So dissemination is a, a big part of it. You know, now... We're seeing copyright transfer agreements that are including language that like you can't share your author accepted manuscript openly. And so they're really continuing to strip away 
these rights, like maybe, you know, in an after an embargo, you can, you know, hide the link on your research website and, and the, while the publisher hopes no one will find it that, you know, you can at least share that with your colleagues. So I think they don't, yeah, there's a mis kind of misconception of, of, um, because it just makes sense to be able to share things more easily. But in a lot of these agreements, that wouldn't align with the copyright uh, transfer agreement that they've signed. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's interesting because these, these conditions have always been, uh, I mean, they changed between different publishers. Um, they've changed a lot uh, as, as everything went digital. And like most digital rights issues, there is a lot of custom more honored in the breach than the observance shit going on. And it, it feels like, especially when it comes to you don't have the rights to do that, there are these flare-ups about every sort of six to 12 months as uh, lawyers working for a publisher or the publisher themselves uh, with uh, working with in-house counsel suddenly go, hey, wait a second, um, that was all supposed to be our stuff. And because and because none of you ever read the paperwork we gave to you, everyone's just giving it away. So, I mean, and then they come for people, of course, and then someone says, okay, so I can't share my work on my website, even when it's in a different format to the thing that I sent to the whatever, because that's supposed to be the whole final mile green OA thing. And everyone yells at them, and then it all comes, comes down again. Um, and it makes, it makes it very murky. Um, when the, the the letter of the law technically a lot of the time is ignored and we have a kind of practice level of uh, what what doesn't doesn't happen um, I think it honestly I think it substantially contributes to the confusion around digital rights is the fact that we're all in continuous violation of something somewhere or other um, I don't know if I had a Decent point there. <laughs> it's driven me crazy for years. You know, and I'm not sure if it's too off topic, but and I know it's it's a it's a very hot we topic right topic. now. But uh, SciHub and and you know, there's a lot of conversation around you know the the larger good that SciHub has brought for those that really struggle to have access, and then those that you know it can kind of help perpetrate the system and status quo because they're like we use this for access until we can't. And I, I think a lot of researchers are very risk averse, and because there are so many different policies with so many different places. When I speak to people, I'm like, "Oh, have you have you do, have you done a preprint, or have you done a, an authorized manuscript?" Oh, I, I don't know the rules. Uh, I'm I'm just going to play it safe and just and just just rely on the paper. Um, and I, I think you really hit the nail on the head that authors are just so relieved their papers got it accepted. Anything that gets pushed in front of them, no, no one's reading these agreements. You, 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 could, say, you could say we're going to come take your take your dog. They're super, they're super long, and people are just like, yeah, whatever, and they're they're signing away these things. So, mm. I, a I lot like, of the time, Dan, I've noticed this that they don't uh, they, they don't seem to have a focus. I mean, any legal document that we sign here at work um, between any two parties. Whether it's DocuSign or you're dealing actually with person preparing you physical documents, there's no way that you wouldn't get copies of that. Like they're probably here. They probably fought a copy to our lawyers. They probably fought a copy to me. If we've got DocuSign, it's preserved in perpetuity with the account, et cetera, et cetera. But a lot of the time that is like downloaded and stored elsewhere as well. But a lot of like academic 
uh, copyright agreements a lot of the time. I feel like you're like people sign them and it's like, cool, you signed a piece of paper. You're never going to see that motherfucker ever again. <laughs> you know, the corresponding author says one out of maybe a hundred people, you know, working on the the article. And yeah, and yes, that's brings up an interesting point because we've been trying to think of how we can bring institutional tech transfer offices into the conversation more because they should be more engaged hmm. on this topic and and advising and it may you know i think it works differently all over the world of course but at least in the in the u.s when we're thinking about um the the, the topic of retaining copyright and we have been trying to engage more uh which is you know it's it's just hard because these are behemoths but they should be pretty invested in their uh researchers not blindly signing these things for publications well you'd 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 sincerely hope so um uh one of the i mean one of the one of the strong defining features of the university attitude towards this is also have a uh, a pretty substantial uh collective disinterest they don't really see their collective output as a um uh you know, like the maintenance of a body of knowledge that we made, our rights to something that we have as an institution. They don't have any kind of, like, there's no parochialism about that at all. You're not, you know, University X does not go, ah, yes, the output of University X must be protected in the global public comment. So it's like we are interested in what we literally made as a contribution to the knowledge base of humanity. It's far more kind of. Well, I can't even track so, it. Yeah, I mean, that's would have been yeah. the hardest part for our policies have been like, great, we, we set this, we know there's outputs coming out of it. How do we track them? <laughs> so we're getting better at that, but it's, you know, the ecosystem doesn't work in a cohesive manner, unfortunately. No, I mean, no, of course no, there's DOIs, no, but, you know, trying to get publishers to have better metadata um, through their systems is, is, has been a bit of a struggle. Yeah, I mean, look, there's a, a lot of a lot of institutions don't have formal. Um, there's there's no formal restrictions or statements on uh, what should happen to the copyright of your affiliated stuff. Um, there's no there's certainly no rules about uh, a lot of the time. Like, you, you shouldn't send this to a predatory shitbox journal. They don't even have that. Um, yeah, they don't they don't know how much of it they've made. Um, I mean, and a, a lot of the time, if there's any kind of problem with it. I imagine that you'd get the same problem. Um, that you get with sort of uh, university research integrity things, um, which is sort of someone in a room who's like, this is actually not technically my job. My job is the internal management of this at this uh, this university. So the research integrity person's job is, well, I have to run all these courses and there's so many for so many different departments and I hire the facilitators and I put up the PowerPoints and we do a lot of pointing. And when you say, hey, that researcher down the hall has done a big fraud, they go... That's deeply confusing. I don't know. I don't understand any of these words. I think that I honestly think if there's a copyright issue, exactly the same thing would happen if you were talking about like whoever handles digital rights within a university. Yeah, I guess it'd be interesting because I don't I don't know what happens outside of getting a like a takedown notice. Like I'm assuming most of them just take it down and that's the end of it. As as any institution like fall back on the behalf of their researcher to have like green oil. I doubt it. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I doubt it. I, That's a lot of I, resources I for a little payout. Maybe, maybe the Dutch. I, I 
think there has been a few. <laughs> I think there has been a few Dutch institutions that have had their own policies with, um, with, uh, f- for instance, uh, r- releasing the author accepted manuscripts, um, despite the fact that some publishers don't allow that. And they've uh, they've they've fought back, and I think they've been successful. Um, but that that's um, that, that that's the Dutch for you. <laughs> Not as many people are doing that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's Ashley, good. I mean, that's what we need. We need to yeah, really push it. We just need the, the Dutch attitude to say, say, say it straight. Now, as well as being the first librarian uh, on the show, uh, you're also the first program officer uh, for that, that, that that's come on the show. And uh, we, we do have a lot of people that are a bit more um, junior in their careers that listen to the show and might not understand the ins and outs of what a program officer does. So can you, can you run through the sort of stuff that you do from day to day as a program officer at the, uh, the foundation? I'd be happy to. Uh, it's definitely a lot of emails and meetings, uh, but at a, a high level, you know, essentially each of our program teams has its own strategy. Uh, so, you know, in global health, like malaria is a strategy. Um, it's approved by the co-chairs and then the program officers are really the ones executing on the work. So giving out the grant funding, managing grant reports, interacting with grantees, uh, kind of throughout the entire lifespan of the the grant. Um, So it's a lot of internal, uh, you know, working through strategy system, our processes, um, and then externally working with with grantees on, on the project. And what are sort of the most common misunderstandings of what people think that you do? Well, I think what's really interesting to me is when on the topic of publishing, we talk about funders and like the funder role. And I think we often forget that funders are mainly academics themselves or come from academia. We have a, a lot of uh, you know researchers that come from you know, institutions all over the world. And so I find it funny that the then funders kind of becomes like an elevated status just because we're giving out the money to do the research. So it's definitely on the other side of the role. Uh, but, I, but I think, you know, we get kind of uh, criticisms about not really understanding researchers' needs and researchers' uh, opinions within, you know, publishing and data and research and kind of their work. And I'm like, no, the, the, we, we are from those worlds and can understand it quite well. Okay. So, so they, they, people have this idea that you basically, uh, you know, administrators rather than actually have a, a background in research. Yeah. Um, and you also have, you're also the lead of the, the open access team. Um, a, a lot of research funders, most research funders out there, um, at least pay, pay lip service to, to open access and say, this is very important for us. Um, but beyond that, um, there's not that much action behind what, 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 what they're saying. Um, why does the Gates Foundation um, have, have, this, have this focus or have a specific focus on having an open access team? I think it's it's critical to having a successful policy. So uh, we we do work with a, a lot of funders, and I'd say the funders that have a strong policy have teams in order to actualize it. And it does take it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of work engaging with the researchers, engaging with the publishers, trying to align policies as much as possible. Uh, so it it does take a, a team of people to be able to do this, especially where you know at a, a large ish funding organization, we give out 
you know, about 2000 new grants every, every year. So those are all the new touch points to communicate the policy. We do, you know, work on tracking and proving compliance and reporting. And some of that is impact assessment. Um, so I think that's why it's, it's important to have a bit of a team. And if you don't maybe have a, an actual policy. So a lot of funders, uh, you know, have guidelines or principles that doesn't necessarily take a, a team to enforce, I guess. Yeah, I was um I was I was doing a, a talk today on um on open access and open research and um and one of the one of the comments that I got was like do, do the funders actually care about this kind of stuff? <laughs> so it's 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 really good to see that uh, that there are some funders out there who who make this an, an, an important priority. Um, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's Dan, Dan Dan would have you do a lot. Actually, it's a thing he rarely mentions. In general, his solution to here's something that I don't like. Uh, is a mandate where the, the the funders can simply step in, set policy, require stuff, and um, that that'll that'll be the end of the story. Because um, you know he he who controls the spice, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, <clears throat> I I I wonder when things. I mean, you obviously seem to have some um, directly. I think we could probably call them progressive research interests here i mean it feels like there are a lot of people especially at government funding bodies who do not care about this as much as uh any of us do um i i do wonder if the because i mean it's it's one thing to say i'm not pushing back on this as much as i'm just like congenitally difficult so bear with me it's one thing to say that um People in general who are handing uh, who are, are handing money out from funding bodies are academics uh, or from some form of academic background, but we are so very far away from a point where a normative academic person understands the center of a lot of these the contemporary issues. I mean, we see it all the time in research in terms. I mean, we had a, a case a case the other day where whoever's running the ARC won't let you apply for an early career award and reference a preprint. Now that is a that is a bunch of academics at a funding body who are monumentally out of touch with how modern academic publishing works. I don't know where that rule came from. Um, and at the same time, if they managed to stick it in, I don't know why they wouldn't have just selectively chosen not to enforce it. So, I mean, does that it's all all we really get out of this a conclusion that like academics suck in general and some of them happen to have money to hand out? <laughs> I just think it's it's hard to get this whole entire system to change, even though we have so much evidence of the way we currently do this doesn't work like. My more pessimistic take on all of this is um, nobody really does anybody really read anything anyways. And and how, you know, publishing has just become such a we need that for career incentive that it's not being flexible um, for how research really should should work in this day and age. And I know it's hard to get some people interested in in the the outputs and. I believe that if we can't have a strong open access policy and start there, then we're we're going to have even a harder time having other outputs openly available or talk about open data or data sharing uh, if we can't even kind of, I think, solve the, the PDF crisis. <laughs> <laughs> How would you define, just quickly for, for people who aren't uh, quite as difficult 
uh, as me, I think my opinion on PDFs is well known to those of you who listened carefully over the last five years and counted all the fucks. Um, what exactly is the PDF crisis? Oh, I, that's I, that's a great question. I, I just, I just can't believe, you know, how these these systems of information works, where you, you know, have to click through five different things where some funders have a, you know, enhanced platforms that I don't think anybody appreciates and they just want to be able to read the information. Um, but, you know, PDF isn't going to, I mean, depending on the setup, this is not my strongest area of expertise, but being able to text mine things like that's where I want to see Im- improvement is in the readability and and the ability to mine things because we already know there's a proliferation of information that nobody's really able to keep up with and read, but I think we could use cool technologies to be able to fix those problems. Um, but most of the pitches I've seen on those types of technologies, they're like, well, we built it off of abstracts and PubMed Central. And I'm like, that's not going to tell you a lot. Mm. Yeah, if I uh, <clears throat> to, 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 to ride my hobby horse yet one more time, I would characterize it simply in terms of for massive digital resources to be available and for those resources to be academic articles, the information that we put in to them needs to be as structured as possible and machine readable, full stop. And without any of those things, um, without either of those things, I should say, um, with this perpetual desire to recreate the fucking front page of the Gutenberg Bible with all the lovely tentacular fonts and whatnot, um, we will we will make a bollocks of our digital resources by essentially doing typesetting on on the cheap, really, rather than just using straightforward digital standards that have existed for I don't know twenty five thirty years potentially. Um, I think honestly, I think the perpetuation of this over time, like a lot of it has to do with this, this, the security and the like, the 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 ability to encapsulate the document in and of itself, the ability to mark it, the ability to sign it, the ability to um, uh, turn it into a discrete object that's readable and a, a whole bunch of different things. It doesn't have to be interpreted by a browser like it's twenty years ago, you know. Um, yeah, let's not. This is um, yeah, you're you're yeah. Yeah, I thought you know, Dan, stuff is- Dan knows how do- how deep this well is. There's a lot of complaining here, which we will not do. We won't get into that. But I, I've always thought that um, this has been more of an issue of branding. That a lot of publishers and journals use PDFs as as a way to to put their brand and put their logo up the top of, of of what they're sharing. But yeah, I actually I've I've seen you said online that um, that uh, post publication peer review and full versioning is the future of publishing. We have spoken about post-publication peer review, something that J- James and I are, are fans of. Um, but full versioning, can you tell us a bit about what this is? Yes. So this is uh, the current technology for Gates Open Research, uh, which is one of my my favorite projects to work on at the foundation. It is uh, runoff F1000 publisher technology, which I think every everyone is aware of at this point. Uh, so we launched a kind of a version. It's you know, Gates branded. Uh, it won't. It doesn't have an impact factor, um, but it's it's for our grantees and does lend you know the kind of that academic credibility that they're looking for. But what's really compelling about it is the full versioning. Uh, I think this kind of transforms the idea of publishing 
uh, is not being one and done, but it enabled to iterate on it, which is, I think, much more reflective of how research really works, uh, more conversational. So you can see the full peer review reports, and then each version that comes in kind of has a synopsis of what's been addressed and updated on it, which I think is very helpful. Uh, and it, it's been interesting to see, too, that uh, I think researchers really and authors really want to get it right. And so even though they may not need to make certain updates um, in order to kind of pass the peer review criteria, they'll update it anyways, because they, they really want... I think the most kind of accurate representation of their work and things change, things change all the time. I think it could be a really compelling way to address uh, the issues with retraction. And I don't understand why you would publish like a separate like DOI minted piece that's, you know, a correction or your atom or whatever they call them, uh, depending on the the journal. So I think that's a way too to be able to correct the, um, I mean, I don't really foresee like version of record as being our our way of moving forward but for the sake of it kind of whatever is the timestamp of the latest you know version of that article um full version control can can update that pretty easily and we've yeah, seen some examples too where a year later there's been another data set generated so instead of writing a whole separate article or a whole separate data note they just uh update the the previous article yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that we always talk about. If we were to re, if we were to invent the academic public system now, this is how we do it. This is absolutely how we do it because the current way or the, the the predominant way that we're doing it is here is the finished product, here is a PDF, it is immutable. You can't change it. This this is just how it is. Maybe if you're lucky, there's a preprint, but actually having this this version controlling, we can actually see the process along the way that these things can change. Maybe you get a new data set and you can improve upon that paper. This is exactly how we do things. Um, I, I do want to stick on this point, but I just want to go back a little bit in terms of I want to clarify. So Gates Foundation people who are funded by, by the foundation, they have, are they only the ones that are allowed to publish in the journal or can anyone publish in the journal? At this point, it's it's only a Gates grantees. Okay. And they don't have, they, they can publish elsewhere. They have the option of publishing. Okay. 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 They can, they can. So it's essentially, uh, we, when I first, when we first launched the platform. We had a lot of interesting conversations internally as well as externally because our first supportive open peer review. And this was back in what, uh, 2016, where, you know, we, we did, you know, senior scientists that would laugh that open peer review is going to destroy science. And so we had to do a lot of, yeah, a lot of convincing. (laughs) Can we we get back to that? Yeah. Yeah. We had to do a lot of why does everything have so much power? Why can't I have the power to destroy science? Everything's <laughs> always so threatening. Yes, yes. And and so part of, you know, going through that that painful process of, of building trust of, of the system is that we have already vetted these authors. Uh, so if we've given them grant money, the idea is that we trust the outputs of that research. Um, you know, F1000 is a standalone journal, so anyone can submit there. It is, you know, APC based, so that is a bit of a barrier. Um, but I think, you know, really what was powerful about uh, having kind of our own uh, branded model, uh, and there's, I think, there's quite a few other funders that have done the same, is that it, it, it does kind of give that stamp of approval that we you know we see value in changing the system and supporting the system moving forward for those that uh, want to go along that journey. And it must be cheaper for you as well. 
So, so rather than rather than giving your um, uh, grantees money to publish open access elsewhere, um, then uh, you you are you cutting out the middle person. Yeah, we've had a, one of uh, my favorite examples is a senior researcher who you know had a paper that would have gone to a typical higher impact journal, and uh, he didn't necessarily at the point of his career need the that kind of you know impact factor on the CV. He just wanted to actually publish the research and have people read it. So it was you know the, the platform. It's kind of similar to a preprint, only that you can't submit it elsewhere. But it was posted as a preprint, and he had. Uh, you know, news media picking it up within a couple of days of having that hosted on the website, whereas it still would have been in, in you know, editor's, you know, email box sitting. So it was exciting to see that. And, and I think we were having authors that have a lot of great experiences of seeing, uh, you know, what it's like to have author control. Like they decide what's to publish there. We don't reject things based off of novelty. And I feel really strongly about that. And um the idea of journal shopping to me is just seems like a colossal waste of time and burden on the system. If you're liking what you're hearing, there are a few ways that you can support the work that we do when everything hurts. First, you can throw some of your spare change to us each month, $5 to be exact, and you'll get access to a bonus episode every single month. There's also a $1 tier that will get you access to the Everything Hurts newsletter and the occasional bonus episode. Second, we've got a merch store where we sell hoodies, shirts, and coffee mugs, which is our most popular thing that we sell, so you can tell everyone that you listen to the best science podcast in the world. Third, you can tell your friends about the show by sharing links to episodes on social media. James and I love seeing these posts. For links to our Patreon page and merch store, check out the show notes. Now, most uh, research platforms tend to, or publishing platforms tend to focus on manuscripts, but I've seen the Gates Open Research Platform has also decided to accept posters and slides and documents. Why have you made this particular decision to, to open up the sort of things that you can submit to the platform? Yeah, this was based off of grantee feedback, which we received while we were initially you know, sharing the the platform, how the model worked, and it started coming up frequently. Like, what about things that don't need peer review? And I think we often place, you know, too much uh, emphasis on the idea of peer review. And we we find a lot of work outside of academia too, which was something that I, I learned a lot during this process because you I tend to think that like, okay, so, you know, we fund institutions and, you know, they work it's academia, but there's a lot outside of academia as well that, that we support with our funding. And they, they don't need to go through a formal peer review process. They're not looking for kind of that academic incentive. They really just want to be able to share with their communities what they need to share. Uh, so that was a good opportunity to think a little differently and, and provide something um, that's a little bit more curated than if we said uh, if we had just like a general repository where we could host, you know, all these different types of, of um, uh, works. Uh, but it, so this actually gives it, you know, DOI, it's citable, we have some basic metrics. And so that was important to grantee authors as well that, you know, they, they're going to host, a, say, a how-to guide that they want to be able to easily share it 
uh, that it's it's going to be preserved and then uh, their community can interact with that and they can see it as well. So it was it was important because it was important to our grantees. We were um, you know able to leverage leverage the platform to save information that otherwise I think would have kind of gone away. So at the conferences, it was always, uh, you know, we, we heard a lot of feedback of like, yeah, we we're hosting these great conferences, but um, that's typically information that a lot of publishers don't find value in from a, you know, being able to extract money from a perspective, but the uh, authors themselves find value in sharing their communities. So we wanted to make that an option as well. I really like this idea of being able to share every single research output there is because publishing a paper isn't the only research output. Right right now, when I'm reporting my uh, my grant activities, it's like, well, here are my papers and you can find them on all these different websites. Um, here are my here, here are my R scripts and you can find them on OSF. Uh, here are the videos that I've done. You can find them on YouTube. Everything is kind of scattered everywhere. So this idea that you can get, here is my research project and here is everything that comes around that, including the papers, uh, including the, the slideshows, including the posters, including the documents, it's really nice to have that all uh, within that one sort of area. And I know, I know you can do this on OSF, on Open Science Framework, but it's, it's quite bare bones. You sort of have it and you put your document up there and there's not much stuff you can do there. So to have this ability, um, I think I think is really nice. And very nice that you're actually listening to the feedback of, of your grantees as well, because so <laughs> it, it's amazing that you see I'm, I'm submitting a grant um, in, in the next couple of days. And uh, the, the interface is amazing. It's like, oh, wow. It looks like they actually spoke to researchers on how to do an interface for, for submitting a grant because you, you go to other systems and you're like, gee, this is this looks like it was designed about 10 years ago. So actually listen, listening to the feedback and getting researchers on board on how to do these things, I like that. It's very nice. Yeah, I think, I think that's a really fun part of my job because I'm actually able to see, uh, you know, more instant uh, impact, whereas with a lot of the policy and pushing for more openness, uh, I feel like maybe before I retire, I might see some some movement in in this open open access space and, and changing publishing. Uh, so it's nice to have those those small wins that that um, add up to a lot more. And we recently, along the lines of the the documents and all the different article types on the platform, is improving their discoverability through um, things like Google Scholar. So we're we're always working on that as well. Yeah, I mean it's 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 really it's really important, and uh, I, I always notice, um, particularly for like Google Scholar, just become. <laughs> I don't know if it's a good thing, but it's become super important for for, for how we discover work. Um, I know at least for my preprints, I, I share a preprint, and there's an initial boost when it gets shared, and then Google Scholar indexes it, and it gets hit on Google Scholar um, alerts, and then all of a sudden there's another bump again because pe- people are following these things. So. Um, ha- having these these documents and these um uh, the, the, these slideshows and all these things um a- access there, I think is a is, is a very is a very nice feature. Yeah, and it's great to see how that information can flow when it doesn't have to necessarily flow through publishers. Yeah, absolutely. Traditional publishers, yeah, more so. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm. I've got a really abstract question. Let's just change tack completely. Um, I mean, I've got the impression with several things that you've said that um, you, like like us, like most of the people who hear this, are very much part of the kind of two cultures conversation of um, a new 
science or academia of uh, one that knows how digital resources work and understands uh, what's happening with a uh, global publication system. It's tremendously problem in support of open papers and open resources and open textbooks and open data. And then, you know, what feels like the sort of 30 years ago bit. And you've been even more negative than I would be a couple of times, which I think is fascinating because I cherish people's opinions who are more negative than me. Not only because it makes me feel good, because it makes me think that they've seen something I haven't. What is the thing that is either most difficult that you weren't expecting or is the most disappointing about trying to do this role that you have at this point in history? I think two things come to mind. So one, and I, I should preface this with, uh, you know, I was trying to say hashtag not all publishers, uh, but <laughs> especially the biggest ones, just to how much extraction there is in the overall process. And, you know, there's a lot of external messaging about how we should all be collaborative and partners and, you know, <laughs> working together for the greater good, um, which I think in theory sounds very nice, but in, in practice, I, I don't see a lot of that happening. Um, and I am continued to be surprised at times when we were trying to set policy and push things um, that there, there, there is a, a major, I think, breach in, in trust between different stakeholders, primarily, I think, funders and policymakers and, and the publishers, because at the end of the day, the publishers uh, especially if they're for profit, that's going to be their main goal. And that's the right. I'm not you know, saying, but then I think the second part of that, my response would be that I'm disappointed a bit in how um, authors and researchers don't see themselves as having real power to change that system. And that it's, it's very much like the system happens to them. Uh, we all have to kind of play along because that's the way it's been. And if we want um, to advance in, in our careers, then we have to play along, which I mean is probably mm. pretty true, but I often question how, how true that is. I mean, if we all picked one big publisher and everyone stopped contributing or submitting to it, reviewing for it, wouldn't it just essentially go away? Um, I don't know, but I think those, those are kind of yes, it 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 would it would. But the moment the moment their fancy uh, the moment fancy journal A uh, is undersubscribed due to some particular reason that like some some grifter is going to see an opportunity as the, the publication volume starts to go down, even if you could organize a colossal boycott. Um, <clears throat> I think the problem honestly stems from. The, the perpetuity of the buyer's market for universities, for uh, fancy publications in fancy outlets, the fact that there's always more, there's, there's, it's, it's, never, it's never a seller's market. Like you have to, there's probably <clears throat> maybe 30 to 50 authors in the English language who write down a thing and then find themselves in a seller's market. Yeah, that's true. Everything else, I mean, this is, I mean, at the end of the day, it is part of the publishing industry. Most of the, most of large academic publishers are also publishers of other shit. Um, trade, trade stuff, uh, fic fiction stuff, uh, digital stuff. Um, they're, they're, they're collating information from somewhere and it's part of the publishing industry. 
Um, but the vast majority of the rest of it doesn't have, I mean, it's not like a, a surveillance state run by gullible volunteers. Everyone is in sort of uh, like perpetual, perpetual Stockholm syndrome all the time. <laughs> I mean, there's, I mean, I see these conversations all the time on, on Twitter where it's like, well, you know, in order to get funding and I, I, and I see it on my side of like, I'm involved in so many funder groups that are just like, no, we need to stop with impact factor. No, we're not going to, you know, base the research off of the uh, container. We're going to base it off of, you know, the impact of the research itself. And, and I've seen that you know, my entire six years of doing this at the foundation, uh, I guess I don't know what it's going to take to get that to kind of proliferate more so that we still aren't having conversations where like, well, in order to get funding, I have to have, you know, a high impact um, uh, article. Mm. Well, I mean, Dan's, Dan's a nasty little man. So he usually goes to the uh, like funerals excuse at this particular point in time. Um, which is, I mean, it's just him being negative, really. He's a very negative man. Um, but uh, this is, we, 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 we talk about these things like they're, they're easy to change, but they are in many respects enormous cultural levers of the uh, entire backbone of the global system of producing and disseminating knowledge about the world. Um, so it's really easy to go, hey, we shouldn't have that fucking thing. We should have this fucking thing. Um, and a lot of the time, what I, could, I mean, I've, I have been very rude about uh, people in our exact situation right now, the, the conversation that we're having previously doing this a lot, because to me, they sound like teenage communists. You know, all that stuff should be free. Everything should be different. Yes, it should. Now, what are we going to do? I don't know that. I just know it should be free. Oh, come on. Come on. Put your Che Guevara shirt down. Cheer up. You're too young for cigars. Stop that. I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you could do your job. It'd be as I'd be as bleak about it as we can. So, so what are you doing at the foundation then? Um, to 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 discourage this kind of stuff. Is it? Do you have like instructions to reviewers not to focus on impact factors? What what sort of stuff are you doing? So I think uh, as a private foundation, we work pretty differently uh, compared to a lot of national funders. So everything is kind of run through the program teams and program staff. So we don't have like external peer reviewers. We don't oh, have qual okay. calls for proposals. Yeah. Uh, we do, you know, we have, we, we, I think as program officers go out and elicit those proposals and then they um, are then evaluated internally, but we, we don't include um, any articles and ask been much better at asking questions like, Okay, if we were to give you this funding, what? How are you going to publish open access? How are you going to share your data? How are you going to uh, abide by? Uh, so we have like the humanitarian license is a new license that we added to our grant agreement. So really um, making sure we're intentional upfront that like these are the expectations. Um, yeah, and I think yeah, in our uh, bio sketches for um, uh, potential grantees, we don't we don't look at publication lists. Now, um, a year or two ago, I think it was two or three years ago, um, I, I put forward a proposal. I'm probably the first person to say this. Um, and James kind of hinted at it before, which was this idea that if the grant, um, if, if, if the granting organizations have the ability to give out the money, um, then they also have the ability to say, um, you can only publish in our journal. Um, now you have the journal. Um, so why not take this extra step? 
and say, hey, um, as a condition of, of, of receiving our money, um, you can only publish in our open access journal. Um, what, what is st- sort of stopping you from going that extra step there? I mean, I think it would be kind of complete chaos, to be honest, uh, in the conversations around you know, academic freedom, which I wouldn't necessarily agree with. I mean, they have the freedom to take the funding or or not is, is how we view the uh, open access policy. We've definitely had uh, some pushback and it's often, you know, the most well, well-funded labs that are very used to the privilege of publishing in those journals anyways that... Um, but they don't have to take your money though. They don't. Yes, yes. And so far we have... Yes, but as we've already established, Dan, researchers do not read the terms and conditions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. And I, I would be curious. I mean, I've, I've never posited that question to the, the larger, you know, internal program staff to see. I mean, again, there's blurry lines of a lot of program staff are still, you know, interested in and working in kind of academia. So they value those journals. We have a lot of staff that also serve on editorial boards and uh, it's it's hard to tease that out. And then from a librarian perspective, I do really value bibliodiversity and I think that's Im- important. And so I, I don't know what would happen if we do funnel all of our research through one platform, uh, but it would sure make my job a lot easier. <laughs> I've got a I've got an intermediate proposal. How about this? Um, as they're going to be, uh, there's, there's there's going to be a variety of, especially individual sub areas where it means a lot more to put a certain piece of information into a certain kind of context. I know, in, uh, like uh, global health, public health sorts of things, like, like that specific argument really needs to be in that specific place. Is what the, the the authors will tell you because it's really important for the 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 like the health of people down the line. Now, yeah, yeah. Now you you don't want to get in the way of that. But here's the thing: what about a line item that says, if you're publishing in our stuff, we have done the calculations, and here's how much overhead you're going to save us from doing everything else that we need to do. Like we don't need to pay open access fees because we already have the infrastructure. We don't need to go looking for it. We don't need to have a plan to do whatever else. Fill in this line item, commit to publishing in our stuff now, and you can have, make it up 12, 15% on your top line. Free money if you commit to giving us the stuff when it's actually finished. I'd be very curious the uptake is, uh, you know, we're seeing a lot, especially with the, say, you know, $11,500 to publish open access in, in nature, that there are mm-hmm. many that would be willing to pay that. Well, I mean... It always comes back to the career incentives piece. Well, yeah. I mean, here's, here's the thing. If you're, if you're getting uh, uh, like half a million dollars and we put 12% on top of uh, half a million dollars. That's uh, like uh, even with fringe, about an RA's worth of money for a year. Um, You tick that box, you can change the nature of the project to a meaningful degree. But it's money that you don't have to commit elsewhere. And frankly, you want to incentivize the thing. And it's your mean you give people the choice. Absolutely. You don't want a commitment. If that's the case, you can tick box A, motherfucker, and then go off and pay your $11,000 open access fee. That's your problem. Uh, yeah, yeah, and I think both from the library and funder sides, we've kind of protected the awareness of the current cost because we we don't take it out at individual grants. It's kind of mm. centralized, so the management yeah. 
isn't necessarily coming from the grant budget. We've, we've kind of already preemptively budgeted for that and set it aside. Um, but I will say recently, like I've already run out of that money and we're, you know, nearing nine months into the year. And so it's clearly, you know, APCs have skyrocketed. Uh, we definitely were publishing more than we have because we've given more grants and COVID and all of that. Um, yeah, but it's, I think, I think on both sides, we've kind of protected the, the conversations around how much it really costs. Yeah. Whether well, it's um, open access yeah, or subscription re- too, because yeah. Re, 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 re cost it. Uh, take the money away from the people who are spending it elsewhere and give it to the people who aren't making your life difficult. <laughs> you, 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 you will find that, um, yeah, we're, we're not like, we're not like teenage communists. We're more like sort of jolly pirates. Um, and I think that's the reason a lot of the, t- a lot of the time that we have not been handed the reins of power. Because no. uh, like one one day I know in like ten to fifteen years, Ashley Dan is going to do one of his cockamamie ideas. Someone's going to put him at the head of a committee <laughs> somewhere. And he's I'm going to do it, gonna, and he's just going to push his thumb on this big red button, and he's going to do that cockamamie smile that he's doing to follow up his cockamamie it's, idea. It's it's good. To look, it's, it's totally it, happening. It is great that there are more foundations that are doing stuff like this. Um, uh, the European Research Council. It's, it's, it's happening, yeah. Our European Research Council um, have, uh, within the past couple of months, launched a, a very similar sort of journal in, in which um, grantees can, can publish it as well. So it's it's important to take these types of steps. But on that note, uh, we're going to wrap up for today's episode. Uh, Ashley, thank you so much for, for joining us, and we, we, we look forward to, to seeing all the stuff that you're going to be doing at the, uh, the Gates Foundation. Thanks so much.